Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 276 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. I just want to say thank you so much for uh, listening today. I know your summer's busy, you got a lot on the go, but I'll tell you one of the greatest joys is hearing from you and hearing the difference that these episodes are making. And this one is personal. I talk to a lot of discouraged leaders, and you know what? There are days I get discouraged, actually, to be totally transparent. Yesterday, the day before I recorded this intro and extra, I was pretty discouraged. And sometimes I'm just like, what is wrong with you, man? Like, what, what is going on? And that's why I'm really thrilled to bring Chris Norton to the podcast. Some of you may have heard of Chris. He has a powerful story. He was making a routine football play in college. It changed his life forever. He was paralyzed from the neck down. And... Doctors told him he had a 3% chance of ever regaining sensation in his body. But last summer, Chris walked down the aisle with his bride at his wedding. His story's been covered by the Today Show, Good Morning America, NBC Nightly News, Fox and Friends, People Magazine. And today, a brand new book with he and his wife, Emily, come out. It's called The Seven Longest Yards. And I sat down with Chris and talked about it. And I got to know Chris, I think, through a mutual friend about a year ago. And uh, we talked about public speaking and uh, getting his message out there and things like that. So it was really a thrill for a guy that I've known and admired for a year who has the best attitude. Like, oh my goodness, I think about, I don't have any problems. (laughs) And like, I think you're going to really be encouraged by Chris and he's a leader that you've got to get to know. Oh, by the way, right after Chris and Emily got married, they went out and uh, like took in five kids. So they're fostering five kids, which is just incredible. And they're in their mid-20s. So (laughs) there's that, right? Hey, by the way, I'd love to track with you a little more closely. So I'm on all the socials. My favorite these days is Instagram. And uh, yeah, I would love to connect with you there. My name's just Carrie Newhoff. That's who I am on Instagram. I'm also on Twitter and Facebook, but definitely the most active on Instagram and in particular, Insta Stories. So I'd love to connect with you there this summer. And if this episode is helpful or any episode is helpful, please, please, please Share it on social, send it around, text the link to friends, etc., etc. I'm going to take a guess here and just guess that a lot of you would love to have more staff than you actually do. True? Yep. Uh, that's true for just about all of us. And for a lot of churches and organizations, it's like, you know what? Really wish we had a professional graphic designer. So I want to talk to you about a pastor's kid uh, named Steph. She went to college for graphic design, headed off to Australia, went to Hillsong College, returned to the U.S., and has a passion to help churches with her creative gifts. So Steph started working at Pro Media Fire as a professional graphic designer and really came alive helping churches reach more people with her graphic design skills. So whether it's a sermon series, event promo, something for kids and youth, Steph loves helping churches around the world as far away as New Zealand at Pro Media Fire. The Pro Media Fire graphic designers really have a heart for the church and they'd love to help you get started with professional graphic design at a fraction of the cost of hiring your own team personally. They're creatives on a mission and they know content and media well. And as you can tell, they're well-educated. Listeners of this podcast receive 10% off plans for life by going to promediafire.com forward slash carry. That's promediafire.com forward slash carry. Also, brand new partner on this podcast, Welcome Church Community Builder. 
Now, this is, you need like a database, right? Everybody does. I remember that was one of our first decisions when we started Connexus Church. Church Community Builder has been around for 20 years because 20 years ago, their founder realized only a few people in his church were really becoming regular attenders once they were baptized. And so the idea is not just to have a database, but to build a community. And Church Community Builder exists to solve that problem by helping you welcome people, get them plugged into community, and prevent them from slipping through the cracks or out the back door. Their software handles everything from children's check-in volunteer management, giving, events, facility scheduling, forms, to even worship planning. And it's built to be the only tool you need for ministry. They even have a mobile app, of course, now that give you and your leaders information about people, notes, and other tools on the go. If you care about people, engagement, and discipleship, Church Community Builder is a must-have. So they're celebrating 20 years, and guess what? They're offering 20% off to podcast listeners. So you can head on over to churchcommunitybuilder.com forward slash carry to get started. Let them know I sent you. So go to churchcommunitybuilder.com forward slash carry. You will get 20% off because you listen to this show. Pretty cool. So if you're looking for a new solution for your church, make sure you check that out at churchcommunitybuilder.com forward slash carry. And without much further ado, so thrilled to bring you my conversation with Chris Norton. Chris, welcome to the podcast. It's uh, just a thrill to have you on. I feel like we've we've been friends for a year or so, and now it's it's great to have you on the show. Yeah, I know it's great to be on the show and talk with you, Carrie. Yeah, how do we connect? Let's go back to that. You reached out to me, right? I did. I I just got some of your content, and I was moved by it. And I just somehow through the grapevine got connected with you, and and here we are. Yeah, yeah, here we are. Here we are, and. Uh, yeah, it's funny because we've been talking about public speaking. We've been talking about your story and your life. And I mean, an awful lot of, of coverage too. I mean, today your brand new book releases on the day that we're releasing this podcast. And you and Emily will be on Good Morning America if all goes according to plan. Is that right? That's correct. So fingers crossed, nothing crazy happens in the world. <laughs> And you've been um, you've been featured in USA Today, in People. You've been have you been on the Today Show? You've been on Good Morning America before. Like you've been all over the place. Yeah, it's we've been blessed to just be all over international and about every major network and major show. If we're not haven't been on it, we've at least been featured on it. Yeah, which is which is incredible, and it all goes back to a pivotal moment in your life. Uh, nine years ago now in 2010. And I'd like for you, for people who are new to you or new to your story, to take us back to that moment uh, when you were playing, was it high school football? It was college football. College. It was college football. Yep. yep. My freshman year, 18-year-old kid, six game of the season, just you know, everything was going according to plan. I was working my way up the starting ranks and playing more than any other freshman on the team. Uh, things were perfect. And it was a perfect day too. Just a beautiful weather. Leaves and the trees are changing colors. Like the low 60s, upper 50s. My family's in the stands. They came, made the drive to watch me play. And the third quarter, we scored a touchdown, which means it's our turn to kick the ball off to the other team. So I I run out to the field. 
the play is mortar kick right, which simply is a short, high arching kick to the okay. right side of the field. And I don't know why we didn't just call it kick right because the kicker was so bad. Every <laughs> kick was short and high arching. Uh, but anyway, I, I actually play on the right side of the field. And so uh-huh. I was going to get in on the action. Like, and this what was your position? Chance. What, what, what were you playing? I was just like the outside gunner. So okay. my job was just kind of like run the sideline and make sure no one got outside of me, um, outside of my boundary. And so the kick was going right to my boundary. So I was pumped. And so the ball's kicked and I'm sprinting downfield. I see this opening forming and I know that ball carrier is going to run through that hole. It's just my instincts telling me just everything looks like he's going to be coming right through there. And so I make a diving tackle for his legs. Like he's a lot bigger mm-hmm. than me. And most people were a lot bigger than me. I was undersized for my position. So I learned just, you just get lower than them. You take them out at the knees, at the ankles, and uh, you can stop them pretty quick when they don't have their feet. How tall are you? Uh, now I'm like six one. but at the time I was still growing, but I was like 5'11". Okay. Uh, yeah. And, and not, not, a, not a bulky guy either. You're pretty thin. Yeah, not a bulky guy, but just fearless. I wasn't yeah. afraid of contact. And that's kind of where I was able to work my way up the ranks pretty quickly uh, because of my kind of tenacity and relentlessness and not having fear in the field, which is a huge part of football. Um, so yeah, so I see this opening and I dive at his legs, but I mistimed my jump just by a split second. So instead of getting my head in front of the ball carrier and hitting him with my shoulder, my head hits him right on his legs. And he's a big boy. And in an instant, I lose all my feeling and movement from my neck down. Hmm. I'm face down motionless. And I hear you know the collision of the players above me, the pile clears, but I can't get up. Yeah. And I'm conscious. I'm, I'm trying to push off the ground. And nothing's working. I'm, I'm confused. But I can tell then the game was stopped for me. And I'm thinking, this is embarrassing. I don't want the game to start stop for me. And so I'm trying so hard to, to move something and, and nothing was working. And uh, Little did I know, but I suffered a severe spinal cord injury. And it would take me wow. years and years before I'd ever be able to stand again. And I'd never stand the same way. Yeah, that was, that was instantaneous and a devastating loss at the time. And you tell the story so well in your book, which releases today. Give us the title of the book too. The Seven Longest Yards. Yeah, and we'll get to what that means because it's a powerful story. But you had like zero sensation. Was it from the neck down, Chris? Yeah, it was neck down. It was terrifying because I felt so like quadriplegic. Head. Like basically, yeah. the diagnosis was quadriplegic. Will never walk again. Feel anything again from the neck down? Yeah. So I was given a three percent chance to ever regain any feeling or movement back below the neck. So not a three percent chance to walk. Which you know, it's easy to just kind of assume that it was the walking aspect, but it was so much more than just to walk. It was to scratch an itch on your face, to be able to feed yourself, you know, all those little things that you are easy to overlook uh, when you'd have nothing below the neck. Wow. Okay. And, and tell us more about that day and the hours that followed because it was pretty, pretty devastating loss. And I mean, the reality is we, we can hardly imagine it, right? You're perfectly healthy one moment diving 
in a football game and the next you can't move anything. Yeah, and the play, it felt like a normal play. Like it didn't feel like anything where you'd be watching and everyone in the crowd goes, ooh, like, ouch, like that, that's got to hurt or something bad happened. There's none of that. And so it was really bizarre how just how devastating of an injury it was for not really a kind of that shocking play or visually play. And, and what was it then? Was it just the way that your head and neck collided? It was just one of those freak things where the angle was just perfect slash imperfect. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I think it just must be. But yeah, so I'm laying there. The trainers come over and they roll me onto my back. They begin you know, asking me questions like, Chris, can you make a fist with your hand? I try making a fist and nothing happens. Chris, can you feel us touching your leg? And I can't feel a thing. And they keep asking these questions over and over again. And I'm thinking, just give it more time. I'll eventually get my feeling and movement back. There's no way something bad can happen to me. Like bad things happen to other people that you read about in the newspaper or watch on television. Or maybe it's a guest on your podcast, Carrie. (laughs) (laughs) But we have that, especially at 18, I imagine there's that (laughs) invincibility, right? Like that just doesn't happen to me. 100%. 100%. There was an invincibility. Um, this wasn't part of my plan. My plan was to be this all-American athlete and to meet the girl of my dreams and get a business degree and someday make enough money to own a lake house. Or better yet, the girl of my dreams family already owned a lake house. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, you know, being paralyzed from the neck down and not being able to move was just wasn't on my radar. And so, I, yeah, I had that invincibility inside me that, this can't be happening. It's something, it's going to get better here quickly. It's just a big scare. But eventually when the trainers and the paramedics got involved, the paramedics called for a helicopter. When they called wow. for a helicopter, that's when I knew, oh this man. This is serious. This is serious. I closed my eyes. I just began to pray. Just God, just please give me the strength to just walk off this field and to get back to my life. Just let this be a big scare or misunderstanding. I just want to get back to that life, to that plan. But, you know, sometimes God has a better plan for you than the plan you had for yourself. Yeah, that's interesting the way you say that. I mean, to some extent, I think we've all had moments not as devastating as yours where we're like, oh, this can't be happening you know, this this suspended reality. And yet you said something really interesting. God has better plans for your life than you do. Do you think this is a better plan? It is a better plan. I mean, now we're we're jumping very far ahead. No, we are I'm just story. curious. I yeah. mean you don't you don't usually hear that. And I mean, we will get to the end of the story, but like, you know, you you're you're doing this interview in a wheelchair. Yeah, yeah. Disclaimer, um, that was not running through my head, though, at the time of the play. It's kind of just a reflection of just how God can just take his mess and make it his message and your pain into a purpose. And that's really where I have discovered for myself. And it took years and years and lots of hard work, obviously, to be sitting in a wheelchair and feel that my life is better than what it was before I was hurt. Um, but yeah, it's not an overnight thing. And I don't want anyone to think that that should be the case for them. That, you know, just a switch of a flip or a switch where they have this new view on life that this is going to be better than what 
they had before. But I think when you just keep going, even if you don't know where you're going, you know, God can put this beautiful plan together. So you get airlifted to the hospital. What happens next? I go through a series of checks and scans. They had to break my neck back together through traction. My neck was so badly broken and dislocated, a grade four dislocation, C3, C4 fracture. Had to be awake for that. That was brutal. Oh. And then they threw an MRI machine. Uh, Then right before surgery, you know, I'll never forget this. The surgeon asked Chris, do you have any questions? And I asked him, will I ever be able to walk again? And this was like the burning question in my mind. I'm thinking, you know what? I won't even ask about playing sports because at this point, sports is everything to me. Like I'm an athlete, I'm a competitor. Yeah. And the idea of not playing sports was already devastating. So I thought, you know what? Let's set the bar low and just ask about walking. And I also assumed that, you know, as a doctor, they have the answers. They'll know what's going on. Like this is like they have a plan or a sheet that can tell you exactly what's going to happen to my life. And the surgeon just looks at me, just looks defeated. And he just says, Chris, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I just let out all the tears I was holding back. And I'll, next thing I know, I'm asleep for surgery. And I wake up the next day on October 17, 2010, thinking I just had the worst nightmare of my life. And the surgeon comes in and my nightmare becomes my reality. He wow. tells me, Chris, you have a 3% chance to move anything below your neck. And that's the kind of beginning of this new life and this new identity that I had to go searching for and discover for myself. What's going through your mind as you hear that news? It was like going into the twilight zone. Just like my ears were ringing. My vision went blurry. Just thinking, no way, not me. No way, not like this cannot be my life. I went into a panic mode, like a desperation that I have to scratch and crawl, do whatever I have to do to get out of this place. I want my life back. And so I did the only thing I could do after he told me that news, which was to nod my head yes and no. And I just nodded my head yes and no for hours. I looked like a giant bobblehead just bouncing Mm. my head around. And I just was focused on whatever I could do today to get a little bit better because I did not want to be in the place that I was at. And I don't know where that resilience or that confidence comes from, but it was just something that I couldn't settle with. And so I just went to work and trying to distract myself, really. I just couldn't let my thoughts go to the place of my future because when I started thinking about the future, it would send me spiraling down. But that's where at nighttime when I went to bed, I couldn't help but think about the what ifs and will I always be like this? Will I ever meet a girl that would want to be with me? Will I ever go back to school? Will I ever be happy? And that was really the the hardest time was just going to bed. How did you get through that in those first few days, weeks, months? A number of things. One was my dad would read Bible verses. He'd read Mm. inspirational posts and stories. He was my rock when I was just shooken up. And I'm really thankful for all the people who wrote to me, like on a Caring Bridge site. I'm not sure if you're familiar with I am. that yeah. site at all, but that's a really powerful way. And I would encourage people, if you know anyone who's 
putting their story, their injury on a carrying bridge right to them because it was those messages from complete strangers where I started to see my pain being used for a purpose. I wasn't out to be an inspiration by any means. I was just trying to get my life back. But that's when I first started to see people inspired and moved by the challenges I was going through and the motivation that I had. And it carried over to them. So that helped me knowing that other people were being encouraged by what I was going through by not giving up. And it kind of gave me some more fuel to the fire to keep going. And then also on the fourth night, I'll never forget this. It's about 4 a.m. I can't sleep. And this physician comes in to check my vitals, which is typical. Someone checks my vitals every two hours. But then she checks my vitals and she does something differently. She gets down on one knee and she says, Chris, look me in the eyes. And she was kind of mean about it. <laughs> so I lock eyes with her and she's a short, slender woman, short reddish hair. She has these glasses and her voice sounded like she came straight out of a Western movie. But yeah. she says, my name is Georgia. I'm from Wyoming. Do you know anyone from Wyoming? And I say, no. And I'm thinking, you know, where is this going? <laughs> then she says, well, people from Wyoming don't tell lies. And I want you to know you will beat this. You will beat this. I instantly just break down crying. I needed to hear those words so badly. I was in such a vulnerable place questioning whether all my time and effort would ever pay off. And in that moment, she just completely restored my faith and hope. And it gave me the courage just to keep going. And she was a doctor. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I believed her. It was, it was such an impactful moment and something I always help other people consider just how impactful our words really can be. Yeah. And you, when did you decide that you were going to defy the odds? I mean, right away, I was determined just because I was, there's such an urgency to get out of this position. It was so yeah. uncomfortable. It was so painful it just wasn't the life I wanted to live. And right away, I just was desperate for something more. And so I just had to go to work. It was like the only way I could really cope with what was happening was just knowing that I'm doing whatever I can to better myself. And something I've always known growing up was that your future will take care of itself when you take care of today. And so I was just so focused on taking care of today. But I mean, don't get me wrong, it was hard not to reflect back on what used to be and what could have been and just trying to wrestle with those emotions and try to stay present and just focused on what I can do. You've overcome some of the obstacles that you faced and you passed a few milestones. Can you share some of those key milestones with us that that you passed? Yeah. One big one was just being able to move my toe my left big toe on Thanksgiving morning after this doctor told me that you know I would never move anything in my legs again just a week earlier. And then I'm able to wiggle this left big toe. And it was the greatest gift that I've ever received. Just being able to wiggle a toe. I was so excited. How just a toe happen? wiggle. I remember the story in the book, but like how, walk us through it. How did that happen? Well, about the fifth week mark, I began to feel this new sensation in my left big toe. Like it was coming out of a sleep, like you get a Novocaine shot and it starts to come out. 
well, I'm not able to move it, but I feel like there's, it's going to happen. And I tell the, the doctor this and, and he tells me, well, Chris, you're actually experiencing a phantom feeling where you want to believe that you can feel something differently in your left big toe that you actually tricked yourself into thinking it's real, but you made it up. So he says it's psycho, whatever. It's like people who apparently lose a limb, they can still feel their elbow or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's a real thing, like this phantom Mm -hmm. feeling or this phantom pain. I I don't know quite the science behind it, but he just put this diagnosis or whatever you may want to call it onto me and what I was experiencing and really didn't give me a chance to explain or really listen to me. He just really brushed it off very quickly and then just was a matter of fact of, Chris, you'll never move anything in your legs ever again. And he turns and walks out like it was no big deal. And it was the very thing I've been working so hard for. And now it feels impossible. And I just was devastated. I just started crying. My dad was with me. He started crying. I've never seen my dad cry before until this moment. And a really pivotal moment then for me was my dad just turning to me with tears coming down his face and saying, Chris, don't let anyone tell you what you can or cannot do. I look back at him with tears in my eyes and say, I never will. And it was that moment and hearing George's words of you will beat this where I'm like, I'm going to prove this doctor wrong. And so I just set out to work even harder up my therapy. And if I wasn't in therapy, I had my therapist write up workouts I can do on my own outside of my scheduled therapy time. So what, do, what does that mean? Like you're not just sitting there going move toe. What, what are you doing to try to bring about motion? So things like uh, they had like this locom- locomotive walking machine, pretty much like a robotic legs that go over your legs and around your chest that straps you in. And it literally walks your legs from the upright position on a treadmill. And so doing that for hours and trying to just get like electric stimulation on like my quads and my hamstrings and my calves, just getting stimulation to those muscles, getting me upright, just trying to get my body to wake up and to heal were some of the things that I was doing on top of just working my upper body. I mean, I had to work every single part of my body. When you lose everything from the neck down, it's not like uh, you when you go to the gym, you're, I'm going to work on my upper body or work on my lower body. Every day was like everything, your toes, your fingers. I, it's, it was, it's a lot. So you're in an insane amount of physio. Yes, an insane amount and just trying to chip away because I knew I just didn't want to get a year out or a couple years out and think, you know, what if, what if I just would have worked a little bit harder? What if I wouldn't have taken off that day or that therapy session? You know, you know, what if, like those what ifs just would haunt me thinking about the past. So I just had to commit so I didn't have any regrets in the future. Did anyone think you were being excessive in doing all that therapy? You know, no one did. Oh, interesting. Everyone was pretty, you know, impressed, inspired. They were happy to see, you know, someone be this determined because a lot of times they see the other direction of someone just wanting to give up and not wanting to try and just settling for what was given to them. Um, But for me, it was, you know, obviously the opposite. Now there is a time they did say, you know, you can fatigue your nerves before you fatigue your muscles. And so although your muscles might not 
feel fatigued, your nervous system is fatigued. So there's a difference. I had to learn that difference in that when it did give out, to just stop uh, and to move on to something else. So that was right. a few things that you know I had to recognize was to not overdo it because you don't want to wear out the nerves and that signal, that connection that was going from your brain to your muscle. So how did that happen that day that you could actually move, move and feel your toe for the first time? And it wasn't a phantom pain. It felt like Christmas morning. It yeah. was an amazing moment. I was with my sisters and I was telling them, you know, we got to go tell, you know, mom and my mom and my dad, they were at another room. And so, uh, and on top of that, I was telling every nurse and therapist, you go find that doctor who I like to call Dr. Phantom, and you bring <laughs> him in here and tell him the Phantom this as I wiggle my toe in his face. <laughs> Fortunately for him, he was gone that day. <laughs> but I might have <laughs> fired up. Uh, I might have said something I regretted, but it worked out. And I was also just been able to prank my family too because my dad, he's like this big motivator. He likes to like do a little pep talk. And so right. he pep talk my feet. And so I told my dad when he came in before he knew I could wiggle my toe, I'm like, dad, can you give that pep talk to my toe? I think it could really use it this morning. And he's like, oh yeah, of course. So he gets down by my feet. He's screaming at it like, let's go toe, move. And just yelling. And then I wiggle my toe and his head popped up like he just saw a ghost. And my mom looks over to me like, did you just do that? And then I did it again with a big grin on my face and my mom just breaks down crying on the spot. Just, wow. She was like happy, then also like angry at me. She's like, you could do that this whole time? You didn't just tell us? <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was pretty funny, but it was a, a really special day and celebrated with family. And to wiggle a toe was uh, such a blessing. Wow. And then it's progressed since there. Walk us through some of the other milestones, Chris. Yeah, a big milestone for me was I was in a walk across the stage on my college graduation. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but that was going to be the goal, putting in four to six hours a day on top of a full school load. And so on 20, in 2015, in May, I was able to walk across the stage of my college graduation, which went viral. And that was with my then fiance, Emily. And I proposed to her the day before that graduation walk, which I was way more nervous for that proposal than the actual walk yeah. in front of the stage. Uh, just, I didn't, I mean, it would have been really awkward if she would have said no. So I'm glad it worked yeah. out. <laughs> but that was a beautiful moment for us. And then the, the next big one was to walk seven yards side by side for our wedding, which then happened three years later, which seven yards was seven years since my injury. And then also it was three yards further than my graduation walk. And we were going to do it side by side. Same way we'll be going through the rest of our lives. You and Emily, I saw the video. It's powerful. Yeah. No, it's, it was a beautiful moment. I could have gone probably 14 yards. Uh, I just had a lot in the tank and uh, it was uh, Yeah, a you great really did. Moment. You didn't look like you were done. You know, even though you're at the end of the seven-yard runway. Yeah, I was. I was really nervous that I wasn't going to make it. So I remember the first time we practiced that walk side by side because when she's at my side, I lose a lot of support that I'm used to. If you 
look back on the graduation walk. She's right in front of me, supporting me. In the wedding walk, she's right at my hip. So I, I lost a ton of support. And when we first practiced that walk, I couldn't even take one step. And this is like eight months before the wedding. And I'm thinking, wow. oh no, like I, this is not good. I can't even take a step. I have to go seven yards. And top of that, we have a, a film crew that was coming to film the wedding and do a documentary on my story. And they already named the movie Seven Yards. So I had to walk. <laughs> you, you got no choice. <laughs> That's a big step, though, from moving your toe to walking down the aisle seven yards and walking across the stage at your graduation was it just progressive between those two points? Like the toe turned into what? A foot turned into a leg. Like how, how did that, how did that go? Yeah. Just a slow progression from a toe wiggle to firing my quadriplegic, my quad, um, quadriceps, sorry. And then hamstring and just slowly got more movement, more feeling. It was just baby steps from there. And just a lot of work, a lot of time in the gym. Is there, is there an explanation for that? Like neurologically? I mean, there's, it's a combination of just your swelling and the healing of your spinal cord after that trauma and surgery. And it's also just a lot of repetition, a lot of work, a lot of time to put into it. Plus, I had a great therapy coverage. The NCAA catastrophic insurance policy, which covered all my medical and rehab expenses just because I was a student athlete at a NCAA affiliated school. And so they've been able to cover and offset all the costs that people would have to incur to keep training, which just mm -hmm. broke my heart knowing there's thousands of people in a chair who want a recovery just like mine, if not more, but can't afford to do so just because of their insurance or whatever coverage they may have. And so actually knowing that, we actually started a nonprofit called the Chris Norton Foundation. So we provide grants to rehab facilities to get the best technology as possible so that other people can gain access to this technology to help them with their recovery. And on top of that, by the time of this recording, we would have already done a wheelchair camp for kids and family. So kids and families come for free to do a week-long camp to zip line, horseback ride, archery, sports, and other fun activities. Um, so that's some, some of the things that we do with the foundation. And that's just a result of just seeing people that just want more with their life, but just can't afford to do so. And here I am with all these privileges because of this NCAA insurance policy. And so we just wanted to give back. How do you fund that? That's amazing. Through a lot of just grassroots fundraising and donations, we put on an annual event every year in my hometown in Des Moines, Iowa. So we're just constantly just doing things like that. And through my speaking too, as I go out and do my motivational speeches, people, you know, they learn about my foundation, they want to get involved. And so we're really just grateful that, you know, as I'm able to grow with speaking or other things that the foundation is growing too. You mentioned Emily and falling in love and the whole deal. And that must've been a lot of fear. It's like, wow, am, am I ever going to get married? How is this going to work? So tell us about how you met and and how that led up to your wedding a year ago. Yeah, meeting Emily was such a blessing, unbelievable, because I was so scared about ever meeting a girl, ever falling in love. I felt like I had 
maybe too high standards for myself. I, I always dreamed about having you know a girl in my life and to be a father, a husband. And I d- definitely questioned it, whether that would actually be a reality. Well, three years later, I'm online. We come across each other and just start casual messaging. And then Emily starts asking me all these personal deep questions like, <laughs> Chris, what's, what's it like you know, after waking up from surgery? And kind of some of the questions that you've asked, Gary, but just from a, a complete stranger that I've never met, um, that was, it just caught me off guard. No questions that people are typically scared to ask when you first meet someone. And she just went all in on those questions and it just allowed me to feel open and, and comfortable in my own skin. And we were just able to meet this connection and uh, she had so much curiosity. So we then set up a, a public meeting spot for us to meet up. And I really thought I was in trouble because when she suggested that she could just come pick me up in her little two-door yellow car with my wheelchair, I'm like, oh no, she has no idea of my situation, how much work it takes. Like, You can't just throw my chair in the back of her car and easily get me in the front seat. It just Hmm. doesn't work like that. And so I really thought that she was naive to the idea of what I was going through. Maybe I recovered completely and was walking. But uh, eventually we were able to meet up and she looked me in the eyes, not at my hands, not at my legs, and uh, just it went from there. To that. For me, it was love at first sight. That's amazing. You know, you said something, she looked you in the eyes. How, as somebody who's living a very different life for the last almost decade now than you did for your first almost two decades, how do, like when someone meets you, what is the best way? to engage someone who's in a situation like you are, in a wheelchair? Just talk to them like you would any other person. And I think just, yeah, look them in the eyes, reach your hand out, shake their hand. I can't tell you how many times, especially in the first five years of my injury, I couldn't, I couldn't hardly move my right arm to lift my arm up to shake hands. And how many times I tried to shake someone's hands when they reached their arm out, but they were uncomfortable on whether or not to grab my hand to shake it. And so they put their hand out, I put my hand out, and then they just pull their hand back slowly. It's like this really awkward uh, situation, but it was just like, just grab my hand, just shake it. You're not going to hurt me. Uh, But there's like little moments like that, that I've realized that would make me feel a lot comfortable. Even sometimes people too, they'll come down on one knee right next to my chair and be at eye level. I appreciate that too. Not that you have to do that, don't get me wrong, but I just little things like that just just makes you feel welcome and accepted. Mm. And, um, so I don't, I don't mind the people talking to me, asking me questions about my injury. It gives me an opportunity to hopefully maybe change their perspective. What were some of the challenges you and Emily had in sort of your period of dating and being engaged and leading up to the wedding? Because no relationship's perfect, right? Definitely not. Just not, can't get it wrong that we didn't have this fairy tale love story, which sometimes I think people believe that. And for us, it just wasn't the case. We had a lot of trials, a lot of struggles, and things really, you know, escalated after the graduation walk, which I thought was the beginning of just 
this fairy tale life and love story, but then depression and anxiety hit Emily really hard. And I didn't see it coming. Um, title of your book, right? And it just was something that caught us both off guard because she struggled with the idea of like, how can I be depressed when nothing bad happened to me? She thought, you know, depression had to be a source of something that came from a, you know, devastating accident or a car, right. you know, something horrible happened. Some kind of life. trauma that happened in her life. Yeah, exactly. Sure. Fair enough. And, and so was, was there a particular trigger? You graduated, you did the walk across the stage and all of a sudden she's struggling with depression and anxiety. There's a couple of factors that later now, I mean, now makes sense, but at the time I, I didn't realize it. But so she has a huge heart for helping kids, yeah. kids who are struggling in the foster care system who have gone through trauma and abuse. And she is so empathetic that she would take on all their pain, all their struggles onto herself and carry that weight for them. And so it started to just kind of wear her down the all this abuse and all these things that these kids were carrying that she was already caring for them. And then on top of that, just the distraction of the graduation walk was no longer there. It was now a reality of what do I do now? Like where do we go from here? And she poured her heart and soul into my graduation walk, which was really kind of a coping mechanism because she started to realize that she couldn't save every child. It couldn't help every single person. Like it just made her feel weak and vulnerable and scared. So she distracted herself with the graduation walk. So with no longer the graduation walk and just everything before herself, it just was too much and uh, began to just spiral down and our relationship spiraled down. We were fighting constantly and I didn't understand it at all, like depression. I wish I would have known more about it beforehand to better have helped her, just like would have listened to her versus trying to fix her and tell her what to do, which just does not work. Apparently not. I keep yeah. trying, but it's not very effective, Chris. It, it's not. I'm thinking I'm a motivational speaker. I'll just motivate her. <laughs> and oh, dude, that, I'll tell you. When you pull the, do you know what I do for a living card on uh, at home? Yeah, that never, uh, you know, I wrote on that recently. Let me quote myself to you. Yeah, that, no, that's a disaster. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah no, exactly. And never that you would say it that way, but it's like, you know, yeah. I have some tips for you. Nope. Yeah. <clears throat> Does I'm not like, go oh, well. This is what I did when I went through my injury and like, you got to do this and that she was just she would get so mad about that. Um, so things <laughs> like that did not work, and I just didn't know how to help her. And it was it was so tough uh, because it began to look like our walk or our wedding wasn't going to happen. Uh, just mm. by how much conflict and stress there was on our relationship, and I just didn't know if we'd ever get back to that place. And our faith started to take a back burner as well as we were going through these hard times when the very thing that we should have gone towards is the very thing that we kind of pushed to the side. I think I limited God and what he could Mm. do and how he could help me. And so I thought, you know, he's not gonna be able to fix our relationship. I I have to fix it. Um, But it, it just took too long for me to figure things out and for Emily to figure things out. But thankfully, you know, we're able to mend things and she turned things around. How did you pull it together in time, you know, to decide, hey, we're going to get married. We're going to do this. 
Yeah. So it was probably about two years after the graduation walk where things were really a struggle. But then Emily went to a church service and it talked about praying and just the power of prayer. And she was been too scared to pray just because it just was too vulnerable for her. It just meant that she was weak, that she needed help. And mm-hmm. she's a kind of person who is very independent, doesn't like to be vulnerable, doesn't want help. And so the idea of turning to God meant that she needed a lot of help. And if she can't help herself through this, then what's, how can she help or how can she be saved or be get through life if something bad truly happened to her? That was kind of her thinking at the time. But just this prayer service um, just started to open her up to prayer. And then we started going to church on a regular basis. And it just felt like the pastor and the service was speaking directly to our lives. And Mm. it gave her the courage to go seek help from a medical professional. And so it gave her that strength to see that medical professional because so many times she's made that appointment and canceled it and didn't show up because she was too scared, but it was with that faith that gave her that push. And she got the help, she got the medication she needed, and it turned things around drastically. So it was a combination of the faith, but then also just seeing a medical professional. I mean, if you break your bone, you got to go see a doctor. You can't just pray about it. So it it was a combination of the two that really broke things through for her. And then just our relationship, we started to put God in the center of it. Hmm. No, that's, that's, that's good to know. And then you guys got married in 2018, is it? And yes. you did the walk down the aisle, which was exceptional to see. Um, tell me when you, when you look back over the last nine years at the time that we're recording this, what are some of the most powerful lessons you've learned? One of them uh, you say in your book, and one of the things I love about your book is Emily tells her part of the story, you tell yours. They alternate, I think, in in most of the chapters. Um, But you say, our lives aren't shaped by circumstances, they're shaped by us. Some people will find that really hard to take. Can can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of circumstances and places that we get ourselves in that we didn't choose. You know, I didn't choose to be paralyzed. I I didn't want this to happen, but it did happen. There's a lot of things that you just, you know, you didn't see coming and then things are affected, but then it's up to you to be responsible for how you move forward. It's taking that responsibility of your circumstance and where you're at to get to the next place. And you should just never settle for the life that was handed to you. And just Mm. don't, don't finish where you started is kind of a big thing to just, to just always improve and just get to the next step and next stage. Why do you think you pursued that route, Chris? Like, why didn't you just sink into depression, despair, resignation? I'm just going to give up and be miserable and bitter and angry about this. Because you see that a lot. I mean, you see that a lot in life. And that's not your story. You're right. I think it's it's two parts. It was my faith. It was Mm -hmm. seeing this light at the end of the tunnel of what's possible with God. So having that faith element was gave me just a glimmer of hope of maybe there's something better out there. Maybe, maybe my life won't be ruined with God. So I'm thankful to have that faith foundation. Then on, the other thing too, with I think just my sports 
background being an athlete because I've had practices and workouts where I didn't think I could finish, but I finished. I had games where it looks like there's no chance of a comeback, but we came back and I failed over and over again as a, as a student and as an athlete. But when you are a student athlete, you know you have to show up the next day and just to keep going. So I think it was that experience and that confidence built over years and years of just failing and putting myself in those vulnerable places that gave me just enough confidence to move forward when this devastating accident happened to me. You've started a company. You're doing a lot of public speaking now. You've got a lot of media coverage too. What are some of the other leadership lessons you've learned uh, over this last decade as you've sort of done more and more public life and continued with your recovery? I take it it's a daily progressive thing. Yeah, something I want people to, to consider is that you just, most of our challenges you can't see. Everyone sees my challenges. Everyone sees what I'm going through. And as a result, I have the privilege to see the best in people. People are so nice and encouraging to me, but I just don't consider my challenges to be greater than anyone else's. You just, again, you can see them, they're just visible. And I mm. think if we can just realize that everyone, is going through something. Everyone has their own battles and challenges in their life. You you can't see anxiety or depression. You can't see the loss of a loved one. Sometimes you can't see cancer, the, the battles that someone else is facing. So just always consider to be your best self and to be encouraging and tell someone that you will beat this, not just you can beat this, what Georgia did for me, and that we all could be a, you know, a Georgia to someone else. So I think it's, you know, considering that, that we're all having those battles and just being intentional about focusing on progress, on the good, the blessings in your life. That's something I have to do every single day. Stay grounded with what I can do and the progress that I am making. And that just gives me that energy, encouragement to move forward. And if people can just start focusing on that progress, the good, the blessings, they'll give you that motivation to keep going. How do you do that? How do you stay focused? How do you make sure? Because I think that you're right. That is a daily battle for everybody. Those who are mobile, those who are not. I mean, I, I have an exceptionally good life and there are days I've been gratitude journaling this year because there are days where I can focus on what's not right, not on what's right. So how do, how do you do that? How do you stay focused on the opportunity, not the obstacle? Yeah, first you got to give yourself a break, right? And everyone, you're human. You're going <laughs> to have days when things aren't going right, where you are frustrated, where you're mad, you're, you are focusing on what is not going well. So first, just recognize for what it is, like you're human. And it's okay to have those feelings and to just let it out and to feel that. Uh, I think sometimes where it can be problematic is just burying it in. And it's okay to just feel that. Uh, but just not letting that then last for too long. You know, let that be just a, a, a minute of venting, of getting it off your chest, maybe two minutes. I think where it can really be problematic is when you carry that with you for a day, a week, a month, a year, and just bury that inside. You just got to let that out, let that out, and then just get to work. When I'm busy, when I'm focusing on the task at hand and what I can do. It's just, it's just breaking it down of today, you know, what, how can I get a little bit closer 
to resolving my problem or to get yeah. towards my goal. And when I feel that I'm making that progress and I'm working towards something, it just feels good. Uh, even no matter how far up the mountain you have to go. But when you're able to just take that step and focus on that step that you made closer to the top, it, it feels good. You, you and I have had a couple of conversations about public speaking and it's something you never thought you'd do with your life. And here you are now flying all over the world to speak to audiences. I noticed one of the things you, you taught me because you hired a, a speaking coach, public speaking coach. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about telling stories in the present tense, not the past tense? And if you listen back to the beginning of this interview, that's exactly what Chris did. Yeah, so something that was really powerful for me was to talk in the, tell stories in the present tense, uh, especially like very big moments in your life. So telling like my injury story in first ten, like first person present tense allows me to relive that moment. I can see that opening when I tell that story. I can see that ball carrier running through because I'm telling it as if it's happening. And so it just allows me to go to that place and to not let that moment be dry or allow me to just brush over that like it's not a big deal because it is a big deal. It was a big moment in my life. So uh, for all speakers, pastors out there, I think that could be a huge shift for you just to be in that moment, to really feel it and take you back to that place, especially if it's a story that you have told a lot. Can you role play one or two of those sentences in the past tense and then how you would retell it in the present tense? Because uh, I know we talked about that quite a bit and I'm like, gosh, I, I know that's right, but like nobody had ever said it out loud in that way. So just tell it as you would, most people would normally tell it and then as you tell it. Just a, a couple of sentences, a paragraph. Yeah, so I think like the Georgia story, right? Mm. This woman came in and then, She got down on one knee next to my bed. She told me to look her in the eyes. And then I looked back at her eyes and she said, whatever she said, you know, my name is Georgia. And I think how I would tell it, obviously how I did tell it was, you know, this woman comes in, she sits right next to my bed down on one knee and she tells me, Chris, look me in the eyes. And so just, I don't know, just that little shift. Yeah. It's present tense versus past tense. Present tense versus past tense. I'm I'm not sure that was enough of a sample for you, but that's kind of just, you know, just making that shift from she told to she she tells me. Happening in real time. I've been experimenting with that in my writing and also in my speaking. Really does make a difference. Makes it more visceral, more immediate, more real and more sensory for some reason. I don't know why, but that's good. What else are you learning about public speaking, Chris? I've learned that uh, it's really important to get the audio right, to get the visuals right, to get the stage right, to, to get all those little pieces right ahead of time before you even take stage. You know, how is the audience seated? You know, where, how, how is the room lit up? What were they doing before they came into that room? You know, what are they doing after the I get done speaking? So just like little mm. things to take into account because that just affects the energy level of the audience and how you're going to be received. So I think I'm always trying to take into account uh, those little factors that I overlooked in the beginning. I, you know, I showed up, you know, when I was a 
younger, you know, 30 minutes before, just plugged in my stuff and just away I went. Um, now I'm really taking into account just how everything is set up. How is the light hitting me on stage? Um, how, where's the speakers located and where's the screen located? And just always looking through every little detail has been really important for my speaking. So how do you work with that data? I mean, maybe you get the after lunch slot or you can't see the house lights. Is this something you manipulate or you just adjust based on reading the room or reading the audience? How, do, how does that work? You adjust how, like the way you can. Uh, mm. If there is a way to adjust it sometimes, there's just no way around it. I've right. been with a group where you know, my lapel, didn't, the lapel didn't work on the stage. And it lapel worked mic? for testing. The lapel yeah. mic. And my hands, they don't work really well. And so, so you can't I hold had, a microphone. So I can't hold a mic. And so just um, just toughening it out, just getting through it, just trying to be, although the, the audio sounded terrible, the visuals were terrible, the speaker before me and the things that they were doing before I got up there was just the most boring, dry thing in the world. But that always sets you up. Then you don't have to be, yeah. that, you know, you can be boring and it'll seem interesting. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Which that does help, but then Sorry. like half the audience is like asleep, yeah, and their seats like, oh man, I hear you. Um, so just like getting them to re-engage and to come along with you, like, all right, who's this guy? Um, so there's like things like that that you just have to work through it. You just got to focus on what you can do as a speaker and to be your best self. Because something I'm still working on is to be able to not have to depend on the audience's energy to give me the energy. I want to be the one to infuse the energy in the crowd and have them come along with me versus being so dependent. So when the group is very tired, when they're hungover from the night before they're at a conference, how to not depend on them to give to give off the energy in the room. How do you do that? How do you make sure that you bring the energy? That's a really good thought. Well, one, I videotape every single one of my presentations so I can analyze and look back on how I performed, how the energy I gave off. And so I can see the differences from the different groups. And the groups, obviously, with like the great lighting, the great AV team, the great visuals, they had a drum line right before I came on stage. Just seeing how I delivered those lines is kind of my basis for how I should deliver every line. And so just like getting that engraved in your head and you're just understanding how you did it that time and to repeat that for when the group is, before you even get up there, is already asleep. And so just trying to, just kind of a mental muscle memory kind of thing for me. What's the best thing that's happened to you because of your injury? I would say meeting Emily. I think I met Mm. Emily because of my injury. It was the fact that she was really curious about my injury. It was the curiosity. I wasn't just uh, a regular able-bodied person and uh, that just struck a cold chord with her. And she is an incredible woman, just Wonder Woman without the cape. And I wouldn't be where I'm at without her. And so I, mm. she's, she's, uh, she's my, my, definitely my better half. Um, what would you say to someone who's completely discouraged right now? Maybe because of something physical they're facing, but uh, half, of the, half of life is emotional. It could just be, wow, they're depressed right now or things aren't going well at work or at home. And they're just discouraged. What would you say to them? 
I would say to just keep going. Just you just don't stop. Don't be stagnant. You have to just move forward. And even if it's just a baby step, even if it's just going out for a walk outside of your house or getting the fresh air or just, you know, reading a couple paragraphs or writing a couple paragraphs. It's just like those little baby steps, those little baby actions of doing things and taking that action and focusing on what you can do. I think it just begins to slowly lift that cloud and it will give you the encouragement to do maybe a little bit more the next day. And so just taking those baby steps, taking one step in front of the other. Well, your book is out today. It's called The Seven Longest Yards. It's something you and Emily wrote together. Forward is by Tim Tebow. True? That's correct. Yeah. Yes. And tell us about the media tour as it's starting. You'll be on Good Morning America today on podcast release day, book release day. What, what else is in the works for the book? Right now we're building around that day and that big event. We're going to do a couple of book signings back in Iowa um, some things in Florida, which is where we live now, on a couple of talk shows. Uh, we did uh, Life Today taping in Dallas. And so we're, we're starting to build up those pieces. And I, I, we just feel good about you know the messages and the impact that this book can have on other people. And you know the title is The Seven Longest Yards, but the walk down the aisle was the easiest part of my story. Like that part was not hard at all. Like I said, I got to walk 14 yards, but it's just like everything leading up to that moment was really where the struggle, where the heart of this book is at. What's your greatest hope that the book will do? That it just gives the hopeless hope that it just encourages that person to take one step in front of the other, that they just keep going, even if they don't know where they're going. That's that's really my hope for it. Well, Chris, I'm really excited to know you, excited to have you on the show. And if people want to learn more, obviously they can get the book anywhere on Amazon, The Seven Longest Yards. But if they want to find you, do you have a website or a place where it's easy to follow and connect? Yeah, chrisnorton.org is my website. And then I'm also active on social media. My handles across all my social media platforms is Chris A. Norton 16. Great. Chris, thank you so much. Congratulations. And uh, so encouraged by your story. Thank you, Carrie. Appreciate it. Well, that is a powerful, powerful story. And Chris is just one of the good guys. Uh, and congratulations, Chris and Emily, on the release of your book today. We are so excited for that. Make sure you check it out. All the details are in the show notes at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 276 or just go to leadlikeneverbefore.com and Google Chris Norton's name and you'll find it there. Okay, a little search bar up at the top. We also have transcripts and the whole deal and quotes you can share on social and so much more. And I know a lot of you love drilling into this. And today, you know what? It's just like, it's encouragement, man. It's encouragement. Next week, I am back with Sam Collier. We're going to talk about how to find your voice, build a platform and stay true to yourself and how to handle feedback and criticism. Sam has blown up over the last five years and he's become a really, really good friend. He had no platform five years ago. He's all over the world on major stages. We're going to talk about that journey. And here's an excerpt from next week's episode. I had to first go, do I like me? Like, what do I like about me? And you know, what do I enjoy? And, you know, that's a hard line because oh, yeah. 
there will be people that don't like you. And the things that you like about you, they won't like. But you have to like it anyway. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I'm so glad to have my good friend Sam back. So that's next week. Hey, if you haven't yet checked out the amazing offer that Church Community Builder has, 20% off to listeners of this podcast, go to churchcommunitybuilder.com forward slash carry. And make sure you check out the incredible work that ProMedia Fire has been doing for the church at promediafire.com forward slash carry. And let's hang out on the Instas this summer. I'm Carrie Newhoff there. Would love to connect with you. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for rating and reviewing this podcast. And thanks for subscribing. It's always free to you. And uh, I can't wait to be back next week with Sam Collier. We've also, it's a double episode week. Ian Morgan Cron is back and uh, we do... Well, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun, but a lot more on the Enneagram, which is going to be amazing. Thanks so much for listening, guys. And I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.